Episode 61, Fractured Skulls, Terminator Channels alongside Monoxide, Sunday, October 3rd, fall season is here, it's October, it's Halloween season! Booga, booga, booga. Yeah, well, before we get to our uh, film discussion, we got some topics to talk about, a big topic in the world of horror, and that is Disney! Oh, first, God. <laughs> first up being Scarlett Johansson. Uh, her uh, lawsuit against Disney over the whole Black Widow percentage money she was supposed to get because she wants to buy a second private plane. I don't know what else she could do with that money. She's rich as it is. Has been settled out of court. So it seems like her and Disney are on good terms again. They probably made her an offer she couldn't refuse. And Jolly Jingle. Yeah, money is the root of all happiness, I guess. And I guess Disney was able to come up with a figure that was satisfactory to her case. Disney pretty much owns everything. So they're celebrating their 50th anniversary of Disney World in Florida. So I should tell you something. Yeah, I guess Scarlet will be there toasting with Mickey Mouse. Hmm. Oh, and our second big news story going to Victor Miller. Um, we brought up his lawsuit in the past. I know you mentioned the uh, Friday 13th video game, how they were supposed to come out with the Jason X uh, DLC, but that didn't happen because his lawsuit was uh, kicking into full gear and I put the whole game on hold. The game's basically dead at this point. I, I don't see it coming back. Uh, but the case is closed or the case has been settled. Victor Miller has won the rights to the original Friday 13th film and... So he now owns the Friday 13th franchise, and that's a that's a very big win for him. For those that don't know Victor Miller, he was one of the original screenwriters for the Friday 13th film back in 1980. I mean, they obviously made a lot of changes to the script, but the one thing that stayed that came from his brain was Pamela Voorhees and the whole idea of Jason being killed, you know, by camp counselors, by camp counselors not paying attention to him. Uh, I know he's gone on interviews since then saying that he's hated the uh, how they basically made a franchise out of this story. He's hated how Jason's has become a killer because the idea was never about Jason being a killer. It was about the mother being the killer for the fact that, you know, they let his son drown to death. But so then, what does a, that mean? Well, that means now I whenever I guess people want to use the Friday 13th, he owns the name. He owns the franchise because now if they were to make a Jason movie, I'm not sure how that's going to work because they can't allure back to the first movie. Because that involves Victor Miller's creation, and they would have to get his blessing in order to do that. When they have to get his blessing, regardless if they want to do any Jason, um, any Jason piece whatsoever, since he owns it. Yeah, they're gonna have to. I, I don't know why they would want to try and play games and try to go play, go around that. Because you know, Victor, if he, as soon as he sees it, he's gonna sue. So just just ask the guy. Just pay the man. All the guy wants is, is to get paid, and he never got paid um, for Friday Thirteenth. Um, I think he was just like a writer for hire. Uh, he never received any percentages, any profits that any of the any of the films have made throughout the past forty years. And they were good. They did plan on making another Friday Thirteenth film at, as more like a found footage film, from what I remember. But Rings, uh, the third Ring movie, failed poorly at the box office, so that put that on hold. But then the video game was successful, so that made people that made the guys hopeful again for a movie. But then this lawsuit happened, so now all that who knows what's going to happen now with this franchise yeah well the thing with the video game was that that was not made by a big game studio like rockstar or anything like that that was made by an independent game studio that you pretty much uh had to receive funds from fans to be able to even put that project together 
So it was a game that was made by the fans for the fans. And while it wasn't a perfect game in general, it was a game that was still being worked on and getting better and better and adding more stuff. And there was a moment in the game where you can see a teaser for a Grendel map with Jason X. And I was super excited because as we reviewed the movie on here, it's one of the biggest guilty pleasures in our library of reviews that we have done. And it's a movie I've seen so many times that I would have loved to have played Jason going around killing camp counselors. Well, wouldn't be camp counselors, but students on a fucking spaceship. Would have been freaking hilarious. But that got put on hold once this lawsuit really started to kick into gear. When uh, Victor, was it Victor Miller that sued or was it the other guy that sued? Because I keep hearing it differently. Um, uh, Victor but, Miller that sued, and then of course Sean is cutting him in his studio try to, I guess I don't know, counter sue or basically they're just trying to protect their rights over, you know, trying to keep their property from Victor Miller getting him. Well, now they don't own it because it went back to Victor Miller. Yeah, so it went back to its original creator, I should say. Because there was that battle, the gaming studio that made the game basically could not feasibly make the Jason X map or Jason X because it was like, we don't know how long this lawsuit's going to go and it's going to be a losing uh, profit if we even attempt to try and do this. And then they were afraid that if they went ahead and did it anyways while this lawsuit was going on, they were afraid of, well, if there's a lawsuit going on, who's going to get any sort of the royalties to it? Is it going to be Sean Cunningham or is it going to be Victor Miller? Then you run into that fucking legal problem and it just adds more to the the issue entirely so yeah and had they got through you would think oh shit what if this guy even tries to sue us for going through with this without you know his knowledge or our i don't know the other guy's knowledge and it would have just been one big mess and of course that independent gaming company can't afford a can't afford a big lawsuit like that mm -hmm. so it just seems like the game just kind of i guess all that just got canceled yeah and they stopped updating the game they stopped updating the the glitches and the uh, bugs. It's pretty much a dead game at this point, which it shouldn't be because had it not been that lawsuit, we would have gotten a Jason X. We probably could have gotten even some more stuff like maybe uh, a Freddy Krueger playable character to be able to do some of that stuff as a Freddy versus Jason or Jason as a child or maybe some of the other characters like the character, blonde girl from the first movie and then the beginning of the second or uh, uh, Alice I think's her name yeah you could have gotten something like that to, as a playable character because keep in mind you don't have to just play as Jason you can play one of the camp counselors trying to get away you could have eventually add Pamela yeah Pamela yeah you could have Pamela Voorhees as uh, the killer um, you could have had a lot of different things there was so many avenues that could have gone with that game and it all um, went to shit because of this lawsuit. And now, even though the lawsuit has a conclusion to it, from what you tell me, if Victor Miller is not a fan of the hockey mask Jason or even the burlap sack Jason, who knows if he'll ever give his blessings to anybody to do a Friday the 13th movie based off of the Jason that we all know and are accustomed to. The thing, I don't, my opinion, I don't know, I don't know Victor Miller personally, but. I don't see him like just like winning his lawsuit and then locking all the rights in his attic and then never to be touched upon again. I mean, I can see him working with all the studios. Just, you know, just pay the guy. All he wants is his money. 
I don't know if he's going to want any creative control, creative input. Maybe they'll maybe make him like a creative consultant, but that's really it. Kind of like how like when they remake Carpenter's movie, he's just there just to collect his money. Like Carpenter doesn't really have any input in what he says. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much input he said on the new Halloween film since he seemed to be more happy being there than he was when they remade all of his other movies during the mid-2000s. It depends how emotionally attached he is to it, though. Like, as I said in a previous podcast, the rumor about uh, Steven Spielberg pulling out of Universal Studios if they get rid of the E.T. ride. He obviously has some sort of emotional attachment, not just to E.T., but to that ride in general because it was the first opening. It's the only ride in that park that was open on opening day. And it is a ride that, yeah, maybe it's not the most thrilling ride in the whole entire park, but it's still got something to it. It's got something magical about it. And he has some sort of passion for it, and he has no problem whatsoever pulling out of ever doing any Universal Studios project and taking Jurassic Park with him, if that's the case. So it really just depends on the personality. And again, we don't know Victor Miller personally. Does he have an issue with anybody doing any piece of Jason that was done after he had done the first Friday the 13th? I don't know. I don't know. I guess this is, uh, we shall wait and see what happens next with, um, I guess, with the Jason character. I mean, they haven't made a Friday film since that remake we reviewed. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. so obviously, as I mentioned, they had plans to do, to try to do more stuff with him. But uh, now with the whole Victor Miller case, now, because now you have a new man at the head of the table. I would have morbidly been curious to see the, uh, found footage version of a Friday the 13th film. That would have been interesting. It definitely would have been a different take on the Friday films, because I guess a found footage slasher maybe hasn't been done on a mainstream basis yet. I I, I'm, I'm, I know that the idea has been done before. I think there's a film called... Uh, there's a film. I know there's a movie on Shudder. Uh, I think it's some. I think it's called The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is kind of like a, a found footage slasher film, or about a guy who wants to be a slasher and he has a camera crew following him of him setting up all the traps and finding the right teenagers for the part and it's a very interesting take on the whole slasher genre but but it has not been done on a mainstream basis so that would have been interesting i'd be interested to see in that final footage films wow most of them are done incorrectly some of them are done right another one i really liked was unfriended the first one that was an okay supernatural one that I liked, even though there was some hokiness to it. Maybe that's one we could do on here if you haven't touched up on it in just Chillin' Network. Or no, I've seen, I've seen Unfriended. I believe it's on, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but I've seen it on there. Yeah, I've seen both of them. The first one being about a girl who was killed, and then the second one was about the dark web. Mm-hmm. And I know they made a similar film, Host, on Shudder, which is basically the same idea of Friended. Oh, God. Yeah, that was the drizzling shits. <laughs> but um, that uh, that covers the Jason, um, Jason, Victor Miller uh, thing with the Friday 13th. So that's finally come to a close. As I mentioned, we're going to see what happens next with the Jason character and the franchise as a whole. What do we see it 10 years from now? Who knows? And before we get to our big film discussion, we're going to talk, i got to promote the Patreon, patreon.com slash the chill never for $1, $1. You get full access to this episode along with other great past episodes. You can follow us on Instagram at just chillin network. Same with Facebook, but on Twitter, you can follow us at just chillin net. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at silent poison. You can follow this guy 
on Twitter at Monoxide YouTube and of course on Instagram at Owen underscore heart underscore guy. With that said, we're going to talk about the film Bruce Campbell considers to be the Cadillac of the slasher genre, and that is the 1978 John Carpenter classic, Halloween. Hmm. Starring uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance. Um, let's talk about Halloween. I'm going to get the budget up here in a quick second, but... Um, this is, I mean, everyone has seen this film. I Hopefully, if you haven't, by God, get go out of your way to watch this movie. It is the classic horror film, although I'm quite shocked that Bruce Campbell said this was the Cadillac to slasher film since Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out four years prior to this. And that was technically a slasher film, I guess you can say. You know um, what? What's funny about this movie is that a lot of people think like, oh, well, this was the first film to have like the final girl. The first, this was like the first, you know, slasher film. And in, in actuality, Halloween wasn't really the first movie to do anything. And oh. you just, you just mentioned Texas Chainsaw. I mean, that came out, yeah, that came out almost that's six years prior to this movie. And don't forget Black Christmas, which was another slasher movie, and that was the first film that kind of did the, um, the POV shot which uh, of course Carpenter adopted from that film into this movie, you know, right in the beginning when, you know, Michael puts the mask on and you, and you, you know, you watching uh, through his eyes basically and you see him killing off his sister. I mean, that idea was done from black Christmas, which I know you haven't seen the movie. I would recommend for you to check that out. And then of course, psycho. And, and I have even mentioned the, um, the Mario Baba Italian films that, that uh, came out in the seventies, Bay of blood, which was a big inspiration for Friday the 13th. It's not so much what they did first, it's what they did right. There's a couple things in this film that the film doesn't get right, but the stuff that it does get right, it gets fucking right. Um, because keep in mind of this, you mentioned the POV of Michael Myers when he's grabbing the, the knife and stabbing his sister. The thing is, starts it starts automatically in that POV position and you don't know who Michael is you're just seeing somebody in their peripheral vision of what they're seeing and they're seeing um, Judith Myers with her boyfriend or whatever doing whatever and he's just sneaking around grabbing a knife blah 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 and the boyfriend leaves he grabs a knife goes upstairs and stabs his sister constantly right after she's like Michael and then she just gets stabbed the swerve here is that as soon as he leaves the house the, this married couple's like Michael takes the mask off we eventually are away from that POV vision they take the mask off and you come to realize that the person that stabbed this woman is a child this random child just grabbed a knife and just stabbed her and just had this look of like Hmm. Interesting. But one thing that I'm not a fan of is the, I watched I rewatched this movie on Shutter, and right after the scene, it goes right into when uh, Doctor Loomis is in the car with that nurse, and they're talking about moving Michael to another facility. When I first saw this film, I saw it on tape, and there was a scene in between here 
it's a scene where Dr. Loomis is telling these two doctors, you need to lock Michael away forever. Because Michael, he's really cold. Like, he's, like this dude, he's going to grow up to be a killer. So he needs to be locked away. And the doctors don't buy it because he's a child, blah, blah, blah. And then you see a scene where Dr. Loomis walks in. And keep in mind, you, the scene that I'm talking about, you can find on YouTube, so it's there. He goes in, and you see Michael just staring at the wall, like, with this angry face. He's just looking at the wall. He's not, like, staring into anything but the wall. And Dr. Loomis hits Michael with the line, You fooled them, didn't you, Michael? But not me. So he knew that Michael was going to be a danger to society if he was ever to escape. Because he just knew that there was something off about this guy. I don't know if you know much about the backstory behind the scenes of this film, but I believe Anthony May covered it on his podcast and they reviewed it about like over almost two years ago at this point. I was not part of that episode, which is why me and you are doing this one here. Um, originally, Bob Clark mentioned this in an interview in 05. He's no, he's no longer with us. He was the director of Black Christmas. He also directed A Christmas Story, too. I mean, it's crazy. He did a Christmas stash film and then a Christmas movie. They play on TVS every year on Christmas Eve. For 24 hours. For 24 hours. Insane. But yeah. uh, he mentioned in an interview when he um, when he made Black Christmas, Carpenter went up to him and asked him, do you, do you plan on doing a sequel? And, you know, Bob Clark's like, no, no, I'm not going to. Because Carpenter had an idea, had he was going to do a sequel, where the sequel should go. And instead of the theme being Christmas, the theme should be the ho- the holiday theme should be Halloween. You know, Carpenter took that same idea and went to this uh, producer, uh, Compass International Pictures, and um, and the CEO told Carpenter, "Look, I had this idea of a movie. It is called The Babysitter Murders, and it's basically a killer who kills babysitters." And Carpenter's like, "I'll do that." He says, "Look, I, as long as you do that, you can make up whatever you want, everything else around that." But as long as, as long as you have a babysitter, a few babysitters, and they get killed off, you can make whatever kind of movie you want. So the whole Halloween theme and everything else around that, you know, John came up with. Could you imagine the movie would have been called Babysitter Murders? Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> Did you see, every, you see everyone wearing the shirt, Babysitter Murders? <laughs> what fascinates me is I, I, I've heard the story vaguely, but I never really went into depth on how it came to be. But I think everybody knows, if you just do a little bit of research, that the Michael Myers mask is based off of William Shatner's face. Yes. But I can't remember exactly why they chose William Shatner's face to be the mask that Michael Myers would don. Because it's, it just is weird that they would just choose, of all actors, William Shatner. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why the shot. I would have to ask either Ed, because Ed's like a Michael Myers freak. He'll tell you everything. I'll have to ask him, but basically, yeah, they took the Shatner mask, they uh, made the eyes and the mask more wide, they made the skin color white, they uh, oiled the hair back, and that's basically your Michael Myers mask. I, uh, I do, I do recall this wasn't Halloween one, this was Halloween four, when they got the shipment to the Michael Myers masks, they showed up in pink, and I remember there was one scene in particular that they had to film. It's the one where Michael throws Dr. Loomis out side the window when they needed the mask right away and they needed to get it done quick before the sun came up. Uh, one of them came back with the pink Michael Myers mask, which is why when you see it, when you see the scene that the Michael Myers mask looked a little off, it's because they grabbed the pink one instead of the regular white one. Mm-hmm, yeah. Quite 
shit. But yeah, it's, no. it's fascinating. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we don't see the mask until halfway into the film. Yeah, uh, this was distributed by uh, Compass International Pictures. They're no longer a business. In fact, they didn't last too long. Uh, Halloween was their biggest hit. Uh, they had uh, seven other films after this, and they all pretty much bombed. One of them being uh, Roller Boogie. Either Roller Boogie or Hell Knight featured... Um, oh, I just totally blanked on her name from The Exorcist, the little girl. I, I Linda Blair. I know she, yeah, she was in one of those movies, but um, but yeah, the production company is no longer business. This being their biggest hit, uh, with a budget of between three hundred thousand to three hundred twenty-five thousand, making over sixty to seven million dollars at at the box office. Holy shit! And John Carpenter got ten percent of the profits, so he made a pretty damn good deal. And this was nineteen seventy-eight. Keep that in mind. So sixty, seventy million dollars. Goddamn. Yeah, and he still felt he should have made more money. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, so, obviously, after he kills his sister, Dr. Loomis has it in his mission to never let Michael out because he knows he's a danger. And they're about to switch him to a new uh, facility. But as they get there, all of the uh, patients somehow escaped on this rainy night. And so he goes to this gate that was completely broken, leaving the nurse inside the car, and a random guy hops onto the car, breaks in, and drives away with the car. And we come to realize that was actually Michael who did that. Yes, one of the patients, yep. Uh, the nurse was luckily able to get out of the car in time before, I guess, Michael was able to finish her off. But at that point, he just went to get out of there, just took the car, and escaped. And this is where we meet Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode. Was this her first big film? Uh, this was her first big film. Not her first role. She did a few uh, TV projects before this, but this was her first uh, big starring role. Yes, this was her breakthrough. And of course, she got the part because of uh, who she's related to. Her mother, uh, Janet Lee. Most people know her from the shower scene in Psycho. Mm. And her father being uh, Tony Curtis, an Academy Award nominated actor. Well, I, th I believe his biggest role was starring alongside Sidney Poitier in the film The Defiant Ones. And the poster cover is him being uh, handcuffed to uh, Sidney Poitier. So obviously the big theme being that uh, a black man and a white man, you know, are in jail and they're both escaping. I haven't seen that movie. <sighs> but that's her father. Mm -hmm. So basically she carried her mother and her father's name. Janet Lee, who uh, I believe in real life is spelled differently. Spelled L-A-I-G-H, but on... She spelled it L-E-E. -E. So Jamie Lee Curtis. She plays the virgin, smart girl who abides by every rule. And I guess was the inspiration to the stereotype that the virgin girl always survives. Yes. Because everybody, everybody else that has any characteristic beyond that has to die. If you're a horn, hornball, both male or female, you have to die. If you're a goofy character, you have to die. If you're black, you have to die. And if you're black, you're first on the list. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, unless you're Buster Rhymes or LL Cool J, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah. So, she meets up with Tommy Doyle. And they are about to have a night together because she's babysitting him. But she has to drop 
some keys off at the Myers place because her father is a realtor and is about to make a sale of the house. The thing is, is that it triggers Michael Myers to stalk her. So the rest of the movie is literally just Lori Strode living her life and this Michael Myers guy is stalking her just everywhere from her school to the park to uh, walking home. You just see him standing in such weird positions just watching her as she's with her friends, Annie and uh, Linda. There you go. Now, Annie and Linda, they have the different stereotypes. Like, Annie is the um, the smart ass of the group. Linda's, I don't know if you'd say she's a whore, per se. Well, let's just say she doesn't shy away from sex talk. Yes, Linda's played Ooh. by uh, PJ Souls, who most horror fans may also know her from Carrie. She wore the hat, the red hat. And more recently, uh, we've seen her in uh, The Devil's Rejects. Did I stutter, oh. bitch? Yeah. <laughs> Did I stutter, bitch? And then he tells the little kid that, uh, what, you afraid of clowns? <laughs> oh, my Anyways, so the one thing they get right is that they're building these characters. You have some sort of affiliation with these characters. That's something that horror films don't do. Like, they always make the characters as unlikable as possible. And as Annie is supposed to be a smart mouth, she's not unlikable. Like, she's not so unlikable to the point where I want to see her fucking choke to death. It's not like um, Tina in Halloween 5, where she's just so loud and obnoxious. I remember a friend of mine, Rob, had asked me, because he loves Halloween 5, he asked me, Tina sacrificed her life for um, for Jamie. What what is your beef with Tina when she put her life on the line? And my response to that was, she started talking. <laughs> That's my beef. Because she just was so annoying that by the time she actually got killed off, I was so happy. Whereas these characters, I mean, maybe Linda would have been the one that I'm like, yeah, okay, you can kill her off. Annie was a, she was a smartass, but she was a likable smartass. Linda was not too unlikable to the point where I wanted to choke the shit out of her. She was yeah, just... Just to add on, I was just saying, yeah, they may, they're not necessarily girls we were, like, rooting for to make it through the end, but they weren't girls who were necessarily hoping they get killed off. Right. You would feel bad if, like, if Linda was a real person and this is what you knew her for in real life and then you hear that she got murdered, you'd be like, oh my God, that fucking sucks. That type. And of course, Jamie, you, you're like, wow, this woman, she's, this girl, she's got her head on her shoulders. She's smart. She's intelligent. She's innocent. Maybe a little too innocent. Uh, I'll, I'll grant you that. It was a little too unrealistic it, uh, to a certain extent. But Jamie Lee Curtis was a great actress that she pulled it off. So she convinced me enough that she was a, a well-likable character. And that's what slasher films, especially slasher films, are lacking nowadays. I don't mind certain slasher films where you're rooting for the killer to just kill people. Yeah, it's fun. You sit there and like, yeah, that was cool. And then he's doing like some weird kills and all that. But a, a, a testament to a true horror film, specifically a slasher, 
is a film that makes the killer a very scary person and you want the main person, in this case Jamie Lee Curtis, to get away. You don't want them to die, you want them to survive and you're like tense at the idea. So, throughout the scene, I mean we're digressing here, they are building these characters up, they're giving you an idea of how they operate. They're, they're walking from school, they're talking about their day, and then Michael's driving by, and that's when Annie hits the line, hey, uh, what was it, hey Freako, uh, speed kills. <laughs> and then when, when Michael just stops, and then she's like, wow, she can't take a joke. It was, and that's where you start to build it up from there. Uh, one of my favorite scenes that is supposed to be comedy is when um, Jamie finally gets home. She looks outside her window and sees Michael staring there. And obviously she's freaked out because she keeps seeing this guy everywhere. And then all of a sudden she gets a phone call and it's someone going. Hangs <laughs> <laughs> up. She calls back. She's like, hello? Why'd you hang up on me? I was eating. And then she's like, oh, you son of a bitch. I thought it was Kevin Dunn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I thought you'd tie it. <laughs> you know what? Harry Pump hasn't been here in 15 years. No one's going to know who he is. If Jim Cornette is listening to this, I think he's getting a kick out of this. He's making fun of Kevin Dunn. <laughs> I, I still laugh when Bruce Pritchard added the line that uh, he called him a Bugs Bunny-looking motherfucker. I wish Jim Cornette would have said that. Anyways, that, that's wrestling talk. So yeah, uh, that was a, a funny moment, but like it, it's bringing you into the whole ordeal. While all that's going on, obviously Dr. Loomis is trying to get into Haddonfield, which is like 100 miles away because he knows that's where Michael's heading. And Dr. Loomis is just fucking freaking out because he knows what Michael is capable of. He's an adult now, and on top of that, he's freaked out at the fact that Michael knows how to drive. It's crazy. So, and Donald Pleasance is great in this film. Let's let's just get that out of the bag. Like, Donald Pleasance was absolutely fantastic as Dr. Lewis. I don't think anybody could have played this role better. And he was not the first choice. Which is crazy to me, because to me, he is Dr. Lewis. All due respect to Malcolm McDowell, who wasn't horrible, he was not Dr. Lewis. Dr. Loomis is Donald Pleasance, for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, the original choice for Dr. Loomis was Christopher Lee. You know what? I could see Christopher Lee pulling this off, but I don't think it would have had the same impact. Like, I think Christopher Lee did better as Dracula. But um, he declined the role, and to this day, to the day he died, he said that was the biggest mistake he's ever made in his career. Yeah, because but then again, uh, at the same time, would he have had the same impact as Donald Pleasance? I think Donald Pleasance just had that aura to him that he is. Dr. Lucas. Like, you still know Christopher Lee as, uh, like I said, Dracula and uh, Count Dooku in Star Wars. Oh, yeah, Lee still had a f fantastic career. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not like because he didn't take that role, his career went south. He still is remembered as one of the most iconic actors of all time. So, but yeah, uh, so as all this is going on, obviously they're still building up Lori and Annie and, and Linda and all. Well, Linda. It, is gone for a while, so they're building more uh, Annie and, and Lori because there's one point where they uh, she picks her up and tries to get uh, Lori to lighten up a bit and gives her a joint to smoke. 
forgetting that her father's a cop, and then he, she sees her father at a yeah, store. And then, and then she just pulls up right in front of him. <laughs> he didn't even see her coming. She just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Well, that's what pot does. It makes you think irrationally. So <laughs> she puts out the, the joint, and then that's when the guy thinks that uh, it was a bunch of kids that stole a bunch of shit because th- he claimed that all they stole was a mask, rope, and a couple of knives. So... They move on to their business. Lori admits that there's a guy that she's interested in, and Annie's going to try and set up a date between them two. And she's like, oh, oh, oh. So. Um, well, you mentioned the uh, the scene where um, the, uh, the sheriff, who's played by uh, Charles Cyphers, who's at the uh, scene with the, uh, the Halloween costume being broken in. They always stole his mass knives, and no, they didn't steal any money. But after they left, uh, Loomis showed up, met the sheriff, uh, and that's what he tried to fill in the sheriff, you know, that, you know, you guys got a problem. But while uh, uh, Loomis is explaining to the sheriff, you can see the same vehicle that, or the Volkswagen that Michael Myers is driving behind him. And then he just drives by and then it just cuts to the next scene. Yeah, a little added touch to it. And throughout the rest of the film, there's sprinkles of Dr. Loomis and the sheriff together where Dr. Loomis is literally trying to warn this guy. And the guy doesn't, it, the guy thinks that Dr. Loomis is overreacting it think, it's funny because he doesn't think that he's crazy because then there's a scene where they go into the Myers house to see if Michael's there and he's not and then that's what it really fills in the sheriff on his sister with Michael and how he was trying to help him and he realized oh, it's a great it's a great scene because Donald again Donald really delivered this and he was only on set for four days yeah. they go on four to keep on four days and after that he's off to film another movie but man he made yeah. those four days count yeah, and the speech he gave was virtually saying that he tried seven years to reach him and another eight to try and contain him because he knew in his mind that the eyes that he was staring at was just simply, as he said, evil. He knew that whoever this boy was, this boy was just pure evil. And here, okay, so now let's let's discuss this. I had a discussion with my coworker uh, at my job, and he likes crazy enough he likes the rob zombie uh halloween movies better than this one and any horror film fanatic including myself was just like i nearly tripped i tripped the same way that carol burnett kind of like fucking tripped in annie when she heard about uh daddy warbucks wanted to adopt a child she's just like falling all over the place that was the same reaction i had i was just like what his reasoning was oh because uh michael had a backstory in the Rob Zombie version, saying, whereas this one, he didn't. He just went off and killed. I'm like, that's what made him scarier. Was that, and that's what made me not want to root for him, because it's like, this guy, as um, Michael Bean's character in Terminator, uh, the, the, Kyle, Kyle Reeves, he's basically trying to explain to uh, Sarah Connor, dude, this Terminator can't be bargained with, can't be reasoned with, and will absolutely not stop ever until you are dead. The same could be said about Michael Myers in this movie. He cannot be bargained with. He can't be reasoned with. He's evil. He doesn't understand the severity of what he is doing, so he just does it. He just kills people. That's scary to me. That's why I love the Joker so much. You can't bargain with the Joker. Some people don't have motives to why they're doing what they're doing. Some people just love watching the world burn as it was put. And I think that's what made Michael so scary here. He 
he was a normal child, or at least they never really got into the specifics of how his childhood was, but you would presume this house that he was living in was a middle-class house. His parents looked like middle-class people, although you only saw them for like a minute. His sister looked like a middle-class sister. He looked like he grew up in a normal house, and he just randomly turned evil. Yeah, and 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 when he, and when they demasked uh, uh, Michael, he's he's just a normal-looking kid. He's not deformed. He doesn't have some scar on his face. He's just a normal boy who, for whatever reason, killed his sister. Not just killed his sister, but it's not like one prior incident, and then he just snapped out of it and was locked in a sane asylum. He just completely turned evil. He just became a fucking soulless killer. So something happened to his mind. And so that's why I think it was effective here when Michael is killing people. You're like, holy fuck. Like, how do you stop a person who's just randomly killing people and you can't tell them to stop because they don't have any reason to? It's just crazy. Whereas the one in the Rob Zombie one, it's like, oh, well, this is why he kills. Now you can use his emotions against him if you wanted to is, and on top of that michael here is not fucking ginormous he's like a five foot ten five foot eleven guy he's a normal sized guy whereas in the rob zombie one for whatever reason they had to hire a professional wrestler to make him into michael myers like come on michael myers is not meant to be a giant he's meant to be a normal sized guy jason okay i could buy him as a six foot four six foot five behemoth up uh, or as paul Heyman would say a beast the beast Michael Myers doesn't need to be a beast. No. Even with his kill scenes, they were they were just him. It was just him choking people. I mean, when he kills uh, Annie in the car, I mean, you know how long it took for him to kill her? Because mm -hmm. she's choking. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> well, like, that's another thing I'm gonna get to. But um, but we're we're kind of fast tracking here. So. Yeah. Um, but but but, but uh, prior to that, him breaking into the. Um, the, uh, the costume store, there's another scene where Loomis stops to, uh, at some um, payphone, goes on the phone, just to let, I guess he was trying to call the cops to let them know that he was coming, that they got danger coming their way for Hanfield. And then over the corner, he sees a red pickup truck and then sees another body on the ground establishing that Michael uh, killed this guy. And I listen, and now you know where he has his, um, his, gas, his gas suit look from. Well, not just that. Or his mechanic but look. Didn't he also find the, the gown that he was wearing from the psych psychiatric house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that also hinted to him that Michael was there. Yes, that, yeah, and that he switched uh, clothes. So... It's like, okay. too obvious. Yeah, there you go. So, that's where he gets the jumpsuit look, and then, obviously, the store where he gets the knives, the rope, and the mask. That's where he gets everything from. So, anyways, it gets tonight. Jamie, or Lori, I should say. I don't want to say the actress's name. She's babysitting Tommy Doyle, and Annie is babysitting Lindsay. And Lindsay's conveniently watching The Thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, so they're babysitting their kids, but then all of a sudden, Paul comes into the play, and she obviously wants to see him. But before all that happens, she's making the popcorn. She spills a bunch of butter all over herself. She has to go wash the laundry in a separate building, and she gets herself locked in there. To which Paul's calling, and Lindsay is just sitting there watching the movie, taking her sweet-ass time to answer the phone. <laughs> and then my favorite part is when Lindsay, Lindsay actually answers the phone, and Paul says, could you just let Annie know that I'm calling her? Yeah, okay. So then she runs out and says, Annie, Paul called. All of a sudden you hear, ah! 
<laughs> it reminded me of Scott Steiner every time he went, ow! Annie was such a likable character despite being a smartass. That's what I loved about her so much. She became such an enjoyable character. So, obviously, she rescues her as she's stuck into the window similar to Winnie the Pooh in the hole. She was stuck! <laughs> and so she gets her out. She calls Paul. Paul wants to have, like, you know, one-on-one -on -one session with Annie. And so Annie's got to leave Lindsay with Jane, or, excuse me, Lori. So she knows she has to babysit two kids. Well, as Annie is walking to her car, she forgets the keys. She goes and gets the keys and it's just, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa. I got to backtrack. I'm forgetting one major thing that happens here that shows Michael's ruthlessness. So I can't remember if it's when she's doing the laundry or if when she's cooking the popcorn, but she's hearing the dog barking constantly and she's just getting annoyed with it. And at one point, the dog is barking at Michael and she's like, uh, whatever the dog's name is, yeah, settle down. And all of a sudden you just hear, she's like, oh, must have found a hot date. And next thing you see is Michael bear hugging this fucking dog, killing it. Would this fly today? Well, the thing is, it's funny because there was also that wasn't the first dog he killed. Because if you remember the scene when Loomis and the cop broke share broke into the house, yeah, you still yeah. see it on screen. But they saw you could see them looking something far in the distance, and they mentioned there's a dead dog here, and yeah. and it looked like it was bitten, as in Michael was eating this dog. Right, but this was actually a visible kill scene. Granted, it was to today, it's not graphic. Yeah, it wasn't a graphic kill. None of the kills in this movie are graphic. Which, to me, added to the film. Because it didn't need all this graphic... I, listen, I love graphic kills and all that. They're cool and all. But when it comes to... When I want to watch a quality film, graphic kills is not what is going to get me to be like, this is a great film. Graphic kills are going to be like, oh, yeah, that was kick-ass. But if I want to watch a film to feel like, wow, this was a masterpiece, kind of like The Godfather, for example. You watch The Godfather, the graphic nature in that film is not as bad as today's scenarios. Yeah, you see bullets to the head and all that stuff, but it's a masterpiece, not for the graphic nature, but it's because of the story pacing and the storytelling and the actors that are playing the roles and all that, all that mumbo-jumbo. Here, it's not necessarily the kills, it's the environment that it's putting you in at unease, like, it's getting you tense. There's one thing I hate about horror films, and even, um, what do they call those? Haunted houses, uh, you know, the, where people make the houses haunted, and you walk in, and everybody's, like, jump-scaring you. To me, that doesn't take talent. Like, can there ever be a haunted house where it's not all about, like, jumping out and scaring somebody because like anybody can do that i can literally take an air horn walk behind somebody without them noticing and blow it in their ear and they can freak out any asshole can do that but to actually build a moment or a story or something to get you at such unease and you just feel so uncomfortable and you just feel so like irrational that takes talent and the last time i ever saw that in my eyes was when I was reading a couple of Edward Lee's novels that he wrote back in the day, specifically um, City Infernal. Uh, we could get to that another time, but um, Flesh Gothic was another good book. Uh, stuff like that, or some of Dean Koontz's novels, where I felt like, oh my God, whatever's happening, I'm feeling at unease. I'm like, I, I, I can't stop reading. I gotta know what's going on. Halloween does the same thing. He kills his dog. 
he's showing his ruthlessness by bear hugging it. So now we fast forward to Annie, who's getting in her car to get, go see Paul, and then she looks at the, the the window, and that's when Michael, like you said, he strikes. He starts trying to strangle her, and she's struggling. She's trying to kick out, and then eventually he takes a knife and just stabs her in the belly, and that kills her. And yeah. it was really well done. Now, uh, so, to answer your question, I know you asked, would this have fl- flown by today with the dog? I will mm-hmm. say this. Had Michael killed a cat in that scene instead of a dog, nobody would care. Nothing against cats. Nothing against people who own cats. I disagree. I, I disagree for one reason. Why? Ten years ago, there was an individual by the name of Luca Magnata who was struggling to become a rap reality star. Nobody was taking him in. And he started, actually, this is uh, to anybody who is sensitive to animal abuse, uh, channel this part out, but I have to explain it to show how ruthless this was. But Luca Magnata, what he was doing was he was taking cats, actual live cats, and not cats, kittens, putting them in a bag and taking a vacuum and sucking the air out, which would then kill the cats. He would do some real bad shit to the cats, stabbing them and all that. And he was filming it and showing it to everybody. To the point where people reported this and tried to get the authorities involved, but the authorities, for whatever reason, just weren't doing anything. He eventually got arrested because he actually killed an actual human, a college uh, Asian student, chopped his body up and put him in uh, boxes. But why I bring him up is because do you want to know how they were able to find out how he where he was? All they had to do was because they did a three part documentary series on Netflix. It's called uh, Don't Fuck With Cats, I believe. They literally all they did was take the video, looked into the background of his video taking stuff like a carpet or a vacuum cleaner, trying to find the model and find out where that model was sold to and be able to deduce exactly where he was and then look at to the outside of the building and this and the other. There was an actual investigation by actual people because of him killing cats. So I think if he would have killed a cat in this movie, yeah, people would have lost their shit. Maybe, let me reiterate myself, maybe in today's era, yes. Back then, not so much. I still, th- I still think dogs would killing a dog on screen is more effective. But I still feel like a cat killing off a cat could be used as a joke in a movie. I'll give you an example. This is Christmas movie in the mid two thousand. It starred Danny DeVito and Matthew Broderick. There's a little scene. He says, "Oh, by the way, he was just moving into his new house." He says, "By the way, do you happen to own a cat?" And Matthew's like, "No." He's like, "Oh, thank God, because I accidentally dropped a fridge on one." And that, that was the punchline. That was like the joke. Oh, ha ha! Accidentally, you know, he accidentally dropped that fridge on a cat. Yeah, but as you said, the way he delivered the line sounded so comedic, as opposed mm-hmm. to an actual scene where the moment is supposed to put the audience member at unease. Because, yeah, there was nothing funny about them killing a dog. Like, you can you can make a killing of a dog moment funny if it's, if it's over-the-top ridiculous. Like, if you have the dog, I, I I can't come up with specific examples, but there have been situations where animals die in films, but it's so over exaggerated that it's like you can't take it seriously. Whereas this, he's bear hugging the thing, and the dog is whimpering, so it's kind of like a serious moment. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. But, um, he kills Annie. Linda comes with Bob. Obviously, they're just both horny as fuck. Bob says something a little bit off-putting to me. He says, uh, I'll take your clothes off, and then we'll take Lindsay's clothes off. Are they talking about Lindsay the child? <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, wait, 
You know Lindsay's like 10, right? Or she's supposed to be 10, or however old she is. I, I don't have to go back and watch that again. <laughs> he said something about taking her correctly. I'm like, that's... Like, what? I, I'm, I'm just hoping there was another Lindsay that was referenced that I'm not aware of that was meant to be like uh, their age. Because that Lindsay, the 10-year-old, because they were talking about taking Annie's clothes off, I'll take your clothes off now, I'll take Lindsay's clothes off. I'm like, what? Uh, anyways. They get into the house, it's empty. They call up Lori. She says, yeah, I'm babysitting uh, Lindsay at the moment. I'm waiting for her to call me back. And then they realize that they're all gone for the night. So they go upstairs to bow, chicka, bow, wow. Uh, Linda asks for a beer. Bob goes and gets it. But then he hears um, noise going around his area. And he's like, okay, come on out. And that's when Michael comes out and surprises him, like holding him by his neck. And he's able to lift him off the air with his one fist. And then that's when he stabs him in the chest and kills Bob. This scene always scared me when I was little. It didn't scare me, but it was effective. It's very very I mean what what sold the scene we haven't mentioned it yet was the the music. Well the the music here is to me not as effective as the later ones, which we'll get to. In fact that was my only criticism of this film. There was um a, a theme that kept playing throughout uh whenever Lori would come on screen. It's but they kept playing it so many times that it was just like, okay, I get it, I get the idea, but they just kept playing it over and over. Same thing with the iconic Michael Myers theme, which I guess we should talk about that just a little bit. Can you come up with a more iconic theme than Michael Myers' theme? Like, other than maybe the Exorcist theme? Uh, oh, no, oh, no, this is more iconic than Exorcist. Um, I'd say Star Wars. Well, I mean, in the horror genre. In the horror genre, this is number one. Really? You would think that Exorcist doesn't even come close. Oh, well, let me not say that. Um, it's Exorcist is number two. Halloween's number one. Everybody knows this theme. Everybody. Yeah. Uh, what about Nightmare? Nightmares is good. I I Nightmare. I don't care for Nightmares theme honestly. Um, it's all right. Mhm. Mm but what I about mean, our fans would know would know that theme. What about? That's iconic. Yes. But now I, I guess that's. I mean, again, it's right behind Halloween. I would even argue I I put that over Exorcist. Well, to be fair, ch -ch 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 is not really a theme, that's, it's a chant. Yeah, that's true. But the hell, uh, Friday's, the Friday theme score is whatever, too. Same thing with um, Leatherface's from the camera. I like that, too, yeah. Um, Those are more sound effects than actual music. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any other one. I guess the Saw theme. Dun, dun, dun. The, my favorite theme... It, it wouldn't rank up there as iconic, but if you ever hear the theme to the Shining miniseries, not the one with Jack Nicholson, the one with the guy from that TV show about planes. Yeah, Stephen uh, Weber. Stephen Weber, yeah. The theme to that is really, really cool. I like that one, but it, it's not as iconic, obviously. Uh, but I think if the general public got to listen to it, they would be like, yeah, this is some haunting shit. Um, but yeah, the Michael Myers theme is great, and we'll get to the theme that I really like in a bit, but but obviously for those for those that know Car Carpenter likes to score his own movies. Very rarely would he ever take. Very rarely would he let other people score his films unless it's Ennio Morricone, who's another great uh, music composer. He does the Good and the Bad and the Ugly. 
And of course, he does the uh, Ecstasy of Gold theme. Uh, the Mandela uses it for the commercials. He does a lot of uh, spaghetti western themes. In fact, a lot of people may not know this, but when Carpenter became a director, he wanted to direct western movies. And he, he never got had the opportunity to do that. But I mean, I guess if you look at a film like Escape from New York... Uh, Kurt Russell's character Snake Plissken is basically a dystop- dyst- dystopian version of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. So I guess you do, you do, you may get some Western elements in some of his movies, especially at least when he gets like to his '90s film Vampires with James Woods. It's vampires out in the desert. I guess that's the closest you'll get to a Western, I guess, with him. So, as he kills Bob, he looks at Bob and tilts his head. To me, that's some freaky shit. He's, like, actually observing the work that he just did. Michael does something that even is thrown off by me. So he goes to see Linda, but he decides to put a bedsheet over himself and the dude's glasses on. So, obviously, Linda thinks that it's Bob. And she's like, where's my beer? Can you answer me? Blah, blah, blah. And then she decides she's going to call up uh, Lori and wonder where the fuck is Annie. Now, you first hear the theme here, but I don't think it's as effective here as it does become in the next 10, 15 minutes. But this is the first time you hear the dumb, dumb, dumb. To me, in my opinion, out of every chase theme that has ever existed in the history of horror or anything, this is by far, this version, let me specify this version, is the best chase theme ever. It's It progresses as it goes on of just complete unease. Like it goes from like a state of panic and the panic just keeps rising as the theme keeps going with more instruments added and more notes. It is so well done. This is ju- this is right up there with the other theme, the Michael Myers theme. This is, it's great. Absolutely fantastic. So he strangles Linda, killing her while she's on the phone with uh, Lori. And Lori makes the funny comment, Oh, so, Annie, I get your famous chewing. Now I'm getting your famous squealing. And uh, come to realize that the squealing isn't stopping, and then she's just getting worried. And I think I think it's this point here you get the first clear visual of Michael Myers's mask. You kind of see it when he's killing Bob. You kind of see it when he's stalking Lori. This is the first time you actually get a clear cut, no questions asked look at the mask. It's pretty haunting because it's supposed to represent no emotion, no expression, if you will. Although, William Shatner, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a great visual. And then this is where Lori decides, I gotta check up on Annie, because she tried calling back. Oh, there was one part in particular that I didn't even mention that was so freaky, because while all the killings are going on, specifically with Annie, Tommy Doyle looks out the window and actually sees Michael carrying Annie inside. To a kid, that's gotta be fucking fucked up. That's fucked up. And he's trying to tell Lori, yo, there's a man, the boogeyman is outside carrying this this person and Lori doesn't see anything, so she's calling him a fibber. Because obviously when he's saying it, Lindsay's getting all freaked out. She's like, you gotta cut it out. Could you imagine being Tommy Doyle in that situation? Anyways, so Lori has to go to the house. She thinks it's all a prank. So she walks in, she's like saying, come on, this joke is over, cut it out, blah, blah, blah. 
walks upstairs, walks into the room. Before I get to this, we forgot one other scene. Yes. Dr. Loomis goes to a graveyard and is looking for the grave of Judith Myers. So Guy's telling him a story about how some murder happened years ago, but he never gets to finish the story because he gets cut off. So they walk, walk, and then they see a tombstone completely missing, and the guy's like, fuck, these goddamn kids. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. Bullshit. Ah! They, they did the same scene in the remake, too, and I, and I loved how Sid Haig sold it when he was, like, the gate, like the caretaker of the cemetery. He's like, these goddamn kids. <laughs> so then Dr. Lewis asks him, whose graveyard is it? And he's like, uh, 18, 19, and then he just, like, sits there for a second because he knew... He was looking for Judith Myers' grave, and then he's like, it's Judith Myers. He goes, came home. So, fast forward, take it here. When Lori opens the door, she sees Annie laying on the bed, lifeless, with Judith Myers' tombstone right above her. So now Lori's freaking out. She turns around and sees Bob hanging upside down. And she freaks out. She goes by a door. Now, I don't know how this door opened, but it just miraculously opened. And it showed Linda's lifeless body inside the closet. And that's when she starts screaming. Now, I got to give Jamie Lee Curtis all the credit in the world. Because she was like, what, 20 years old at the time when she did this film? She did such a fantastic job in acting scare. She just, you could see it in her face. You can hear it in her voice. She's a fantastic screamer. Yes. Um, and Danielle Harris picked up on it when she did her role as Jamie. And, and she was fantastic, too. So then Michael comes out of the shadows and stabs or tries to stab Lori in the arm. I don't know if she, he actually like gets her or anything, but he definitely gets her shirt. And she trips and falls on the stairs. That's when you hear the dun dun And what transpires here is classic horror. This is, in my opinion, something that every horror film, specifically slashers, are lacking. There's not a whole lot of action going on. Yeah, you saw the killing of Annie. You saw the killing of Bob. You saw the killing of Linda. But now comes the chase scene. We built an hour and 15, however long minutes into this. Slow build, slow builds, building up Michael as this ruthless killer, building up Lori as a likable character, building her friends up as likable characters that were just killed off. Building up Dr. Loomis as the concerned doctor that knows what Michael's capable of. We did all of this work. Now it's time for the chase. We build it up. You didn't throw it in our faces. You didn't take too long to get there. And you didn't um, bum rush it too quickly. They gave us the right amount of time, and now it's time for the chase. So now Lori is running for her fucking life and is doing such a fantastic job running around trying to get out. The door is locked. She runs to another door. Uh, it was like a closet or whatever, or the laundry room. She locks the door, and Michael just trying to open the door, can't open it, so he just punches through the door, showing his strength, unlocking it. She can't get through this glass door, so she breaks the glass. She escapes. She's running. She goes to a neighbor's house screaming, help, 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 and the person opens the window and re realizes, oh, it's Halloween. She, they're thinking it's a prank. So they just close the lights. So she realizes she's got to go back into her house, but she forgot her keys. So now she's trying to wake up Tommy and Michael, He's not running, he's power walking. And they're playing this music, that don't, don't. And as it's going on, you're just like, come on, you wanna get the fuck in the house. And Tommy, who's not aware of how 
dire the situation is, taking a sweet ass time to open the door. It's like when I'm on the bus and I've got diarrhea coming out and the driver's driving as slow as possible going over potholes. This was what that was. Oh my God, it was, it's a very fantastic chasing because it's like, you don't know if he's gonna get her, if she's gonna make it in in time. And eventually she does and it's so fucking well done. Yeah, Tommy unlocks the door that very last minute. She's able to get in, tells him all to hide. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop no. Michael from getting into the house. Yeah, I don't know how Michael got in. How, how did he get in? How did, how did he get in? Did they lock the back door? Did he sneak through a window? But he's, this was the only thing that was kind of like off-putting to me. Like, how did he get in the house? Like, there was no explanation, but he somehow got in. And she stabs him in the neck with a clothespin hanger. Yeah, so, this, was, this was when they were in the living room. Right. And uh, the kids are upstairs. So she goes upstairs and tells the kids... We're, we're gonna take a walk. We gotta get out of here. And they said, "Did you kill the? Uh, did you stop the boogeyman?" And she's like, "Yeah." Well, how? I killed him. But Michael Myers is walking up that stairs, and now she's chasing him again. And she tells the kids, "You gotta go and hide." Blah blah blah. So they go and hide. She goes into a closet and locks it with like a piece of clothing or whatever. Somehow he knew he, she was in there, so he starts like trying to get in, and he can't get in, so he just breaks through the door. She's freaking out, and then eventually she um, stabs him in the eye with another clothes hanger. He drops his knife, and then that's when she proceeds to stab him somewhere on his body, and that's when he goes down. So, as this is going on, he she tells the kids, "You got to go to the street. You got to go find a neighbor. Call the cops." So, as the kids are running out of the house, she's sitting there, and Michael. If any of you are wrestling fans, you know how The Undertaker or Kane used to sit up after they were knocked down? That's how Michael got up. And I'm almost positive they took Michael Myers' sit-up from for their gimmicks. Yes, that's, that's exactly the, where they got it from. Yeah, the way he just like sat up and just turned his head. And he turned it real slow. Then they put the music back. The dump. Kids are running out. Dr. Loomis sees the kids running in crazed fear. That's when uh, Dr. Loomis realizes that Michael's in that house. Michael is sneaking up behind Jamie, or Jamie, I'm sorry, Lori. Lori. <laughs> well, Jamie's his actress name, so. Yeah. She, he's still trying to strangle her. And this part, I don't know how I feel about this part. As he's choking her, she demasks him. Yes. She, take, she did, takes the mask off, and then that's when he comes, like he steps forward, and you can see his actual face. You see his face, but I feel like at the same time, you don't see it that clearly, but you see it. And I don't know how I feel about this because it's scarier not to see his face. Because the one thing that the movies preceding got right was they eliminated his eyes. It's all black. Mm -hmm. Here you could kind of see his eyes. Oh, and there was one thing they did in this movie that was scary. The heavy breathing that Michael does. You hear him go, That to me was freaky. Could you imagine being strangled by somebody and you're hearing the grunting? This is the only Halloween movie that does that. The rest of them, you kind of hear heavy breathing, but you don't hear the grunting coming from his voice. Like, could you imagine being held up against the wall by somebody's hand and you just hear that, the (laughs) It's funny when we put it, but when you actually watch it, it's fucking scary. It's creepy, yeah. Yeah, so Michael looks, puts the mask back on. That's when Dr. Loomis shoots him. 
And then Michael kind of just stands there looking at him, and then Dr. Loomis shoots him, as he says in the sequel, I shot him six times! He's not human! So well, he, well, well, here he shot him six times. When we get to the sequel, there's another... <laughs> he got another round in, which is impossible, but we'll get to that in the next movie. Yeah. So he shoots him a bunch of times, he pulls up the balcony, and he's laying there, and then Jamie is like... Or, fucking Jamie. Lori's like, uh, what's the boogeyman? Because that's what Tommy Doyle asked her earlier. And then all Dr. Loomis said in response was, as a matter of fact, it was. He walks over... He looks down. Michael got up and ran away with ease. And then that's when the Michael Myers theme plays. The duh, 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 duh. You see Jamie, Jamie, Lori, crying <laughs> her eyes out because she just went through a traumatic experience and she probably already knows that the dude is alive. Dr. Loomis is sitting there like, fuck, we are not dealing with just a normal killer. We are dealing with an unkillable monster. And I can imagine in 1978 how this affected people who bought tickets to go see this movie. And that's when they end the film by showing shots of every scene where a crime happened. And you just hear in the background Michael Myers' voice or heavy breathing going, <sighs> similar to Darth Vader. It's establishing that Michael could be anywhere. And it shows you all these dark locations that Michael could be there, he could be there. Roll credits. And that is the end of Halloween. Mm -hmm. Fantastic ending. Had that had that been the ending of any other film, especially a Friday the 13th one, that would have sucked. The mm -hmm. fact that this film has a franchise, I think kind of hurts that ending a bit. But if you look at it as a standalone film, as a standalone movie, that is a fantastic ending. To me, this is one of the greatest horror films of all time. It's not perfect, as I said, my, my criticisms are, how did Michael get into the house after she locked the door? That was a little bit unexplained. And the music that they kept playing over and over and over and over again was kind of a little bit much. Not enough to derail my enjoyment of the film, but this film does everything right. From building characters, building suspense, See, the difference between this and Rob Zombies is that when Rob Zombie starts the chase scene, the chase scene goes on for far too fucking long. Oh, yeah. It, just gets, it goes on and on and on. This didn't go on too long. It didn't go on too short. It was just the right amount of chase. It felt great. It was... This film is... It's not just one of my favorite horror films of all time. I think this is one of my top favorite films of all time because it just does everything right. Now, I watch it today and I don't feel like, oh my God, it's tense because I've seen the film like a bajillion times. But when I first saw it, it I wouldn't say it gave me nightmares because I never was the type to be like covering my eyes whenever I saw Michael. But even as a child, it was just like, I was on the edge of my seat wondering, is Michael gonna capture her? Is Mike, or is Jamie? Okay, let's try this again. <laughs> he did it again. Lori! <laughs> if Lori was going to get away, it was... It just did so many things right, and it's my major gripe with horror films now. It's they're, they're kick, There's some films that are kick-ass in kills or in visuals and stuff like that, but 
a lot of horror films just rely on cheap tactics to get a scare out of the audience and it's just it's too cheap it's not there's no talent there I would rather see a film where they build a moment and get you sucked into it to where you don't know what's going to happen and then you feel it unease. It This did everything right and I feel like out of every horror film, every horror, every horror film character, this really made Michael Myers into one of the most scariest characters in the history of cinema, bar none. There's only five kills in this movie. Rob Zombie uh, had over 25. Yeah, and Rob Zombie's was less effective. Wonder why. Wonder why. And, and there was a lot more blood in the Rob Zombie one. Yeah, this film, you know, this could have worked as a black and white movie, Halloween. It could have. I could see that. It, it, to me, that's interchangeable if it was black and white or if it was color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still would have the same effect either way. But this was without a doubt one of the best horror films in the genre it's just it's it's fantastic like exorcist is up there is one of the greatest um blair witch project <sighs> trying to think of some other horror films but this is without a doubt one of the greatest and, and i've often said of all the uh, slasher killers in cinema michael myers is my favorite because out of all the films like the series of films i've liked i've enjoyed the halloween films a lot more than Nightmare or Friday the 13th or the Leprechaun movies, the Hellraiser movies, Child's Play, etc. I've had more enjoyment with the Michael Myers films, regardless if they were good or bad. But Michael is without a shadow of doubt my favorite slasher killer, and I think it's all due to this film right here. The uh, cinematography was done by Dean Condy. You might not heard of that name, but uh, he's had a hell of a career, and this was one of his. Uh, this was his very first films, or at least one of his breakthroughs. Um, he's done. He came back to do the cinematography for the second film. He's done cinematography for Back to the Future One, Two, Three. He's worked for uh, Steven Spielberg with Jurassic Park, yeah. and he's worked for Adam Sandler for Jack and Jill. Yeah, so that's a career. I would give him that. Yeah, he's worked with Carpenter, Robert Zemeckis. I think he did Forrest Gump as well. Man, he's still a lot. Yeah, this yeah, Dean has had a hell of a career and then it went down by doing Adam Sandler movies. But <laughs> this film did did kind of set the blueprint of what all the other horror slashers followed, you know, when it came to the eighties, and that they all try to be like Halloween. And then when Halloween came back with part four, they tried they wanted that to be more like Friday the thirteenth. Yeah. And Friday the 13th falls under the guise of, well, let's make the kills as epic as possible and all that. And it just, it doesn't have that same effect because you feel bad for Jason and then these characters that they have that are running away with the exception of maybe Tommy Jarvis, they're all interchangeable. You couldn't care less if they die. But at least with those kills, it worked for them. As with like Halloween, the kills were very like, they weren't they weren't over top they were very they felt more grounded it felt more real some of them some, some of them because and then, and then of course with the later ones i think he kind of choked the guy to death to, to the point of squeezing his throat I was like oh come on that was too that was too jason are you talking about uh brady's kill in halloween four uh yeah i thought he crushed his face but I crushed his face whatever it was something something crazy that that, that actually was I, I believe it or not, that's the one kill that fucked me up as a kid. 
because I thought he was, I thought he was just going to strangle him, but then he crushed his face, and that fucked me up because I saw that when I was like ten or eleven or some shit. Uh, I actually thought it was an effective kill, but that's neither here nor there. Um, or don't forget that same movie, he was able to put his thumb through a guy's head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my, but that's that's called the Thorn trilogy, which meant that the reason Michael became a killer was because he was possessed by a cult. Yes. So, I have a love-hate relationship with that storyline because it's better than what we got with H2O and Resurrection, and it's way better than what we got with Rob Zombie's Halloween. I still got to see if the 2018 one is a good substitute, but suffice it to say, I, I would take the Thorn trilogy over the rest of the films, even though part six is, um, <clears throat> I know, uh, Chillin' Killin's touched up on that film, but... Uh, <clears throat> uh, not yet. We're going to be soon, and you are welcome to join us. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to talk about that film in great detail, because uh, I have a lot to say about that. Yeah, there are two versions of that film, the uh, regular theatrical version and the uh, the director's cut, with the Tommy Dill character, I believe, being played by Paul Rudd. Yes, who has this uncanny ability to never age. Yes, it's amazing. I was going to say, I what else is there to say about uh, John Carpenter's Halloween? Uh, it's one of the best horror films of all time. It's one of John Carpenter's top films. Some people argue with that in The Thing or even They Live. Uh, it's an excellent uh, debate because I think those are all great movies in their own right. But with Halloween, this film just hits all the right notes. We mentioned the uh, the soundtrack to the movie. It's very iconic. One of the greatest of all time. We're going to be reviewing Halloween 2 next, the 1981 version. Originally, I was going to go back to I, w I was going to do back to back reviews. But I figure Chill and Killin did back to back reviews with Halloween 1 and 2. And they said that the second film works better immediately after you watch the first one. And I want and I'm feeling, and then, and I figure, you know what? We're gonna watch it separately, me and you. We'll watch it. You know, we already seen the first one. Now we're gonna watch the second one a week later, and to see if the second one is still effective, watching it on its own, or watching it back to back, or just previously with the first one. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see how the second one holds up. Yeah, I, I'm gonna be honest. I have seen the second one, but out of all the Halloween films prior to the Rob Zombie one. I think Halloween 2 is the one I've watched the least amount of times. It, it's definitely the one I haven't watched as much of. And not including Season of the Witch, because that's not a Michael Myers film. I'm talking just strictly Michael Myers. And, and even then, I think I've seen Season of the Witch more than I've seen this one. And I've seen it. I've seen it like maybe twice or three times. But I've not watched Halloween 2 as much as 4. I've watched 4 countlessly. I've watched 1 countlessly. I've watched 5 countlessly. Six, I've unfortunately watched countlessly. Uh, and H2O and Resurrection, I watched countlessly because they came out in a time where I was just getting into horror. And as a kid, you think they're classic. But then when you realize that they decided it was a great idea to have Buster Rhymes chant, trick or treat, motherfucker, then you're like, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, it's a, the Halloween franchise is, is a definitely, it's an interesting franchise because they hit the reset button so many times on it. Yeah, it's been virtually the Vince Russo of all horror genres. And yet people still love it. People still think it's the greatest horror franchise of all time. I, I don't think so, but but we're going to be diving I, I, into these sequels and we'll, 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 we'll get an evaluation of it of our own. We'll have to give it a rundown because right now I would say 
this is without a doubt two thumbs up. Maybe not as good as Suburban Sasquatch and Killer Pinata, but it's <laughs> I mean, this is the quintessential of, of sla horror slasher. Correct. Uh, it does get any better than this. You had some other great films. I we we mentioned Maniac. Yeah, that's really yeah. That's really only really I thought another great slasher I really enjoyed was Maniac. I mean, the first Hellraiser, but is that really a slasher? Oh, it's oh, a hard one. I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, Pinhead's not a slasher. Uh, what about Child's Play, the first one? Chucky, Ch I like the second one more. Uh, what about Scream? Scream's a good slasher. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first Nightmare was really good. It was good, yeah. It was never, it was never a favorite of mine. Neither here. I mean, Freddy just got more goofy as it went along because it was clear as day Robert England just didn't give a fuck, or he was just like, "I'm having fun with this." I don't know. The Terminator. Would you consider Terminator a slasher, even though it's sci-fi? It, it had slasher. It had elements of it, even though he didn't use a knife; he used a gun. But it definitely did have its horror elements to it. Yes, I think I think it's underrated in that department when it comes to that. <laughs> Excuse me. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I would say, was the first, and I thought the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a really well done film as well. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw. Uh, you had Psycho. Uh, you want to count any of the Italian films, uh, Bay of Blood, or any uh, any of those types of movies with the, uh, as, as we mentioned with Malignant, you had a lot of those films where the killer Candyman? Was, uh, Candyman. I really, I, oh yeah, the first Candyman's great. I haven't seen a new one, but I haven't, I haven't heard anyone talk about it. Oh, I was going to say, but no, that's not a slasher film. I was going to say Hannibal Lecter, but the first movie, Silence of the Lambs, it's definitely not a slasher film. No, well, no, Lecter's not a slasher. He's He's a killer. Well, he's a yeah, he's a killer. He, I want I never considered him a slasher. I don't consider Jigsaw a slasher. He's yeah, more, no. more under the torture porn. Torture porn, and he doesn't necessarily kill his people. He just puts them in traps that involves them killing themselves. Yeah. But our next episode, uh, Halloween 2, 1981, Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance return to their roles. It's been a while since I've seen this movie, so we're gonna see how this one holds up. Storyline takes place immediately right after the events of the first film. Filmed in 1981, so we'll see how that turns out. Woohoo! So uh, this was a long episode, guys, but it's definitely worth the listen. Great film, great podcast. Fractured. Yes, For Monoxide, I'm Terminator Travis. We'll see you in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs>